while many of us understand domestic violence isn't always physical, people can often find it difficult to recognise and understand the more subtle forms of DV. Legal Aid Queensland's lawyers work every day with people who've experienced all forms of domestic violence. Today we're chatting with two of our consumer law experts, Paul Holmes and Loretta Crete, both senior lawyers in our civil justice services, about one of the lesser understood forms of DV, financial abuse. Paul and Loretta, why don't you tell us about the areas you would normally cover as consumer advocates? Okay, thank you, Caroline. So we're a part of the Consumer Protection Unit in Civil Justice Services. So what that means is we help people having trouble with credit, debt, insurance products and other products like that. So what that means is we help people in trouble with mortgages, credit cards, car loans, personal loans, consumer leases, insurance products and other small amount loan type products. Well, there's even more, Paul. There's energy contracts, body corporate fees, council rates and those pesky buy now pay later schemes or products. Very true. Buy now, pay later, though, is a subject for another day, I think, Loretta. <laughs> and I'm assuming that would also include your general utilities as well? Absolutely. So as, as consumer advocates in the civil law area, obviously there must be a bit of a crossover into the realms of family law and domestic violence? Yeah, so what generally happens is that people often don't want to talk about domestic violence, and so they often come to legal aid and present with one problem which might very well be that they have a debt issue. And when you dig around a bit, you find that there are underlying issues. And one of those underlying issues might be domestic violence. That's right, isn't it, Paul? It yeah. is. And in some cases, what we get are referrals directly from the family lawyers who've mm. seen the DV and have picked up that there are debt issues associated with that. It could come into us in both ways. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, or from the community. In, in fact as well. Absolutely. So what you're saying is financial control a recognised form of abuse in the Family Law Act? That's so true. It's recognised both in the Family Law Act and under the state legislation as well. So in the Family Law Act it, it singles out two in particular areas where a person might be suffering from economic or financial abuse and those two areas are where they where the um, person unreasonably denies the family um, member the financial autonomy that she, he or she would otherwise have had, or unreasonably un withholds financial support needed to meet family expenses. The State Act also refers to uh, having people um, forced into signing for loans or um, signing guarantees. So it's even broader and goes into more detail. A lot of ways though, mm. the, the State Act unpacks a bit those definitions mm. in the Family Law Act because yeah. the Family Law Act definitions are very legalistic, let's be honest, mm. and talk about financial autonomy and things most people don't understand. Yes. What people in community understand is being forced to take out a loan or only being given $50 a week to spend and having to justify all of those expenses yeah. and things like that. And the State Act, I think, does a really good job of trying to explain that in a way that the community can better understand. Yeah. So one of the other things that I always think about is where the person may take the other person's goods and dispose of them or destroy them, or especially when there's loans in relation to those or guarantees or... The, the classic being driving the car away 
crashing it knowing that it, the car loans in the person experiencing the mm -hmm. violence's name yeah. and knowing that the, the loan company can't come after very easily the person who's done the damage. Okay, so we're starting to get into the area of recognising what financial abuse is. Um, and it, it can be really hard to recognise, can't it? But there are obviously some warning signs as well, uh, whether you're experiencing it or whether you're watching it as a bystander. In your, in your view, what, what should people be looking for? I, I think the big one to start with is if you've had to give up passwords to your bank accounts, that's, that's a big one because that's the first sign, I think, of somebody trying to restrict your ability to do anything financially. And when I say ability to do anything financially, what they're seeking to do is make it really hard for you to leave the relationship. And if they know what you're spending because they've got access to your bank accounts, they can do their very best and often be very successful at making sure you don't have the financial capability to leave them. In our work, particularly because it's around people coming to us who have mortgages, car loans, or those sorts of things, the warning signs are often when people have left the relationships and the, the debt's left behind. We used to call it sexually transmitted debt um, because that's exactly what it was. It was a phrase coined in the uh, 90s. But the sort of things that we talk about and that are not so obvious is, like you said, restricting access to money so that you only have a certain amount of money to go and do things and it's very tightly controlled about how that money's and spent. And wrapped up in that is the idea that you've got to justify what you've spent the money mm. on so that they can track your spending, mm. which makes it really hard to do or take steps to escape mm. a relationship that's gone bad. It's also very difficult, I guess, to have any money to leave if you're not able to go to work mm. for a variety of reasons. I've certainly seen examples where Let's, let's say there's been pretty close to continual pregnancy over a number of years mm. um, and that sets up a, a relationship where the person experiencing the violence is either forever pregnant or looking after young children. And let's be honest, most people are very reluctant to leave young children at the best of times, let alone mm. when there's a risk of the young child being exposed to that type of violence, if they, particularly mm. if they leave. Just recently, I heard about someone who had gone to the supermarket and had been asked to buy two things from the supermarket and rang up their partner and said, I don't, uh, there's not enough money in the bank account. And the partner said to the person experiencing violence, said, well, if you put back the thing that you're purchasing that's extra, you'll have enough money in the bank account to pay for this. We were talking about something that costs $2. So it wasn't like a whole lot of money. So, yeah. Yeah, so we're not talking situations where we're dealing with hundreds or thousands of dollars. No, it, it can be very small amounts of money and it can be... And in situations where it's not necessarily the case that the person's at home, this was a person that was working, so should have really had access to their own money. It wasn't combined income of the families. Mm. But even in those situations, as you've just highlighted, mm. people who outwardly would appear to be in control yes. actually have very little control in the relationship. Mm. And that's a really important thing to remember. 
just because public facing, they mm. look like they have some financial control. The reality is in these relationships, they don't. There's no one thing that highlights the control in this financial abuse scenario. It can be any one of a number of things, mm. or it could be all of those things that are impacting that particular relationship and that person experiencing the violence. And that's why sometimes you have to do the digging. It's not sometimes obvious on the surface. Sometimes you just say, what did you say? Is that really what happened? I mean, that was the case in that particular one about the spending. I was very taken aback by hearing that story. But they're, they're yeah. the, in a way, they're the good scenarios because yeah. that's where somebody trusts you enough to say that information. Yes. And, and that's a really big mm. thing for people in this space, to be able to trust enough to tell at least some of their story. Okay, so let, let's break this down to some pretty clear examples that you see on a daily basis. So, you know, say a couple has a home loan or a car loan or say a personal loan even. What are some examples that you've seen around um, abuse with loans and debt? Okay. So the classic, I think, is joint mortgages. Absolutely. And it's a big one because often one party is very interested in staying in the home because they might have family responsibilities. This is the only home that the children might have had. And they're very concerned that they maintain that residence for their children, but at the same time that they um, protect themselves from um, abuse that they might be under. So the two classic scenarios, one is you've got the person experiencing the violence stays in the home and the other mm. party to the relationship leaves. Often in that scenario, the person experiencing the violence either hasn't been working or doesn't have enough income to service the mortgage by themselves. What that means is the other party leaving the relationship sends a way to keep control over the person experiencing the violence and how do they do that? There might be a number of ways. So. There might have been an arrangement where the person who's left the home has said that they will pay their share of the mortgage and then they don't end up paying the mortgage and so that puts an enormous amount of stress on the person that stays in the family home because they think how are they going to be able to pay for this. And in other cases, there might have been an arrangement that they would pay in lieu of child support. So again, they might have entered into an informal arrangement thinking that would keep the other party happy and they end up in a much worse position because they can't afford that payment on their a own. And this can even be contrary to existing family court orders, can't it? Absolutely. How does that person manage the abuse that's happened or the economic abuse but also manages to get themselves into a situation where they can either keep that home for themselves or find somewhere else that they can live. And then the contrary scenario is the person experiencing the violence actually has to leave the house mm. and the other party to the relationship stays. And the classic we see there, and I've heard this threat made a number of times, I'm going to stay in the house and ruin you financially until the police come and remove me. That's and the classic scenario there, isn't it? Absolutely, and it's very difficult to do something about that in the short term. Yep. Obviously, in the long term, there's things that can be done, but it often means that the person who's coming to see us, uh, who's left the home, is saying, how can I sell this home, or how can I um, make sure he or she pays the mortgage? 
Um, it's a really difficult situation and they're often struggling to rent. And, and the reason is when you've got a joint mortgage, you're both responsible for the entirety of the loan. Mm. And the people experiencing the violence aren't in a position to pay the loan because by leaving the relationship, they're not only having to look at trying to pay the mortgage, they're looking at paying rent on top of that. And it's mm. just not possible for most people in that position. I'm yes. assuming also if there are kids involved, they're also paying for the children's upkeep as well uh, and running a household outside of that exactly. other property. Yes. Exactly. And, and this is a way of maintaining control in the relationship because the person that's left the home wants to ensure that they don't have any defaults on their credit report and also want to maintain the equity in that property because the longer the person um, stays in the property, the co-borrower stays in the property, the more the equity is stripped out of that property. And especially if they force the bank to go and take the legal action, of course, there's huge legal costs added. And when we say equity, Loretta, we're saying that's the amount of money you'll get after the mortgage gets paid out and the house is sold. So what's left over after all the debt mm. is paid associated with the house. And the reality is if people can sell the property themselves, they're much more likely to get a much better price than if the bank forecloses and sells that property. When we're talking foreclosure, it's where the bank takes action to take the property off you mm. and sell it themselves. People obviously have other loans and financial commitments as well. What are some of the examples of financial control there? I think guarantees is another big one. Hmm. We will often see people who are in a relationship and one party to the relationship already has bad credit and the only way they are able to go and get, it's usually a car loan or, or horribly to me who doesn't like motorbikes, we see an awful lot of females who experience violence guaranteeing motorbike loans. In fact, the people think that they're guaranteeing the motorbike loans but they're actually either the main borrower or um, their joint borrowers, or the whole loan is in their name. And like you said, they don't even ride a motorbike. Your yeah. point there highlights the control load, and that's mm. the idea that they're pressured into coming along to the local dealership and signing whatever documents are put in mm. front of them, not given usually by the person or their relationship with mm. the opportunity to even read them. They're just told, sign here, or, or you'll get it when we get back to the house. And so mm. they sign up not understanding what it is they've even signed up to. And mm. down the track, when they're finally able to leave the relationship, they find out they're either heavily indebted under a loan, as you point out, or have guaranteed the loan, and the person they've escaped from knows that full well and will often not pay, knowing that that's a way to ultimately ruin the person mm. who's left's credit report. And especially because the good in this case a motorbike is something that's easily hidden. Absolutely. If the lender can't find the, the might bike. be able to find the other person but can't find the motorbike. And, and the thing about the guarantee idea is it can follow you for a number of years because it's only once the creditor realises they can't recover the full amount of the money from the borrower that they then go after the guarantor or the person who's given mm. the guarantee. And what that means is it's possible that it might be four or five years after you've left the relationship, you suddenly get a phone call from a lender saying, pay up because the person you gave the guarantee for hasn't paid. 
And that sort of trauma, that long after you've managed to leave a relationship, can have a really big impact on people's ability to move on and recover. Lisa's are a pet hate of mine because they have really serious effects on the person escaping a domestic violence situation. And that's because with lease goods, they're often easily to dispose of. What type of lease goods are we talking about? Oh, we could be talking about TVs, phones, furniture. White goods? White, White goods. So there's a number of issues. One is when the person leaves a relationship, the person experiencing violence, they leave the goods behind. They have to go. So they have no more access to the goods. The person might have destroyed those goods. And because there's security for the loan or for the lease, if they can't come up with those goods, they're often, they have been threatened in the past with the police, so with criminal charges. And that is particularly serious because we've seen people pay for goods that they no longer have because they've left domestic violence situation or the um, other party has destroyed those goods. Uh, and they could be paying for those goods for years and years and years after those goods have been long gone. And that's because under some of these contracts, there's really large what, what are termed termination fees for mm. ending the contract, which are often replacing the, the full value of a new good mm. because that's the loss that the consumer lease company has suffered. They no mm. longer have the good to re-rent out or re-lease out. But those contractual terms don't really reflect or, or adapt themselves to people experiencing family violence very well at all, do they? No, and these are, I think, particularly used to exercise financial control because the other party often knows that if the person doesn't pay, then the consequences might be a complaint to the police or may have more serious consequences than other loans where there's no security attached to it, where you might not, where you might have other options. Or the other variation on that mm. is rather than the police, the idea that you can get a default listed on somebody's credit report has mm. the, the practical effect often of we've seen clients saying, I now can't afford to leave the relationship because I can't borrow enough money to actually escape. And if you've got a default on your credit report, the reality is you're not being able to borrow from anybody. I guess the other thing we should explore that happens a fair bit in this space are toll debts. And I think it's really important mm. to cover that as well, because the consequence of a toll debt going wrong and debts ending up with spur, or the state penalties and enforcement register, is very serious. And so the classic scenario there is the toll account might be in the person experiencing the violence's name. The car may still well be in the other person's name in the relationship, and they may well drive deliberately through the tolls, trying to rack that toll debt up knowing the person can't pay it, knowing that when they can't pay it, administrative fees get added to the debt, which means the debt becomes very large. Mm. If the debt remains unpaid, the debt could end up with spur. And one of the difficult consequences there is potentially your licence can be suspended. Now, I should add, the tolling companies are getting a lot better in this space at dealing with that scenario. And, and they have financial hardship lines where people in that position can ring and seek help but you've got to know to go there. And I guess that's why we're talking today, is because the importance of people 
dealing with any of these debts as early as possible is really high because the earlier you approach them, the easier it is to work way through them. I guess also if you are experiencing domestic violence and your ex has taken the car and they're running it up and down the, the tollway, are you able to even call the toll people and say, hey, listen, this is my rego or this is the rego? Shut the account off. Yeah. Absolutely you can, if, yeah. assuming the toll account is in your name. Well, that's the problem, and I suppose you only find out later, don't you, when, that, when you start getting the bills accruing. I suppose so. if the car's still registered in your name, the problem is the tolls are still being raised against the person in whose name the car is. So this is a really good way that somebody can exercise financial control over another person. And that's actually quite complex in terms of wiggling yourself out of that. So yes, you can cancel your toll account, but if the car's still in your name, you've, you, you need legal advice. You know. Absolutely. The other thing to be really careful of about tolling yeah. accounts is if the person who you've left has access to the tolling account, potentially they can track where you've moved to. And that's another really important mm. thing to be aware of in this space. And if you've left and you haven't updated your address details because you've left suddenly, and the last thing you'd be thinking about is tolls that you think are only $3 or whatever, you know, one toll, and you don't tell the tolling company that you've moved, then those debts can add up very quickly without you even knowing about it. And worse still, the account gets sent to the address where you left. That's the problem. Where the person who... Can now be aware of where you've been driving. Or if they're the ones doing the driving, can just not pass on the information mm. that... Absolutely. Mm. And so what about things like Centrelink debts as well? Centrelink debts can be challenged, but we just suggest that people get legal advice about that. If Centrelink raises a debt against them, get some legal advice. And in fact, this is always an important thing. I, I think that, I know we're going to talk about where you can go for help, but I always think get help early and um, you know make sure to ring legal aid. It's a really good resource. It really gives you lots of information about what you can do and where you can go. And I know we're going to talk about that a bit later, but I just thought in relation to Centrelink debt, it's such an um, important message to get across. We do have specialists across. in that area, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. Yes, we do. Yeah. And so when it comes to people's financial health, how about telling us about some of the other forms you've seen, like, say, restricting access to money just in general? So, and this goes back to the idea I was talking about earlier around passwords often. And either you have no accounts in the person experiencing the violence's name, or if they do have an account, they're forced to give up the password so that the person controlling the relationship has access to everything they're doing in a financial sense. And they often end up picking at every purchase that the person experiencing the violence makes mm. with the idea of making them think they're not able to handle their own finances. And so gradually give up the control to the person who ends up controlling the relationship. And once that happens, when you've got no access to money, you can't go anywhere, or it's extremely hard to go anywhere. And the other ways they do that, and, and this is one we started to talk about earlier, is credit reports. That's a really big one, Loretta, isn't it? Yes, and I mean, this would be a generalisation across the community, but for most people, their credit report is very important. 
they do not want a default on their credit report and therefore even if there's an arrangement that the other party pay for an account, if the debt collector or um, the lender says to the party escaping family violence that if they don't pay, they're going to get a default on their credit report, guess what? They pay. And if the other party knows that, they're going to use that in terms of controlling them. Mm. And, and that happens not just across loans, that also happens across telecommunications contracts for phones, mm. happens across utilities as well. Mm. It's not just the loan contracts that behaviour happens, does it? it absolutely. And it, because to get access to a credit report, you have to belong to an ombudsman scheme, yep. it's really important to go and ask that creditor for help early on. If you can get in early on before the default is listed, you're much more likely to be able to negotiate with the creditor as to what might be a solution to the issue, but it's really important to get in early on. You mentioned ombudsman. For mm. people who haven't experienced an ombudsman before, what are we talking about? It's really a complaints body. So the general thing in our area, particularly with loans and utilities and Energy, uh, well, energy contracts, those sorts of things, there is a complaints body that you can go to. We used to always call them ombudsman schemes, but now there's, there's actually, well, there's one big one for financial services. That's the Australian Financial Complaints Authority. And there's one for telcos. And there's one for energy contracts as well. But I guess the question is, why, why would our clients bother using them? Well, because they might be able to help them if the creditor doesn't help them, they can go there with their complaint. So let's take it back to basics. If you are struggling to pay your bill because mm -hmm. your ex has stopped helping you financially or that bill's just marching on because you've had to leave that house and you contact that provider and you explain that to them, are they by law expected to work through a sort of hardship policy with you or what what's the what's the process there they are expected to work through a hardship policy with you in financial services in with in relation to telecommunications accounts and in relation to energy accounts and if they don't work with you then you have the right to go to the complaint service and ask the complaint service to um, work out a, a workable solution for you. I did want to mention this because sometimes people come to us, particularly in the mortgage space, and say, well, I'm in hardship, um, I've had a separation, I'm a victim of um, domestic or family violence, and I should never have to pay this loan back. My situation isn't going to change. It doesn't mean that you get to walk away from the loans because you're in hardship. It just means that if it's possible and you can pay the account in the long term, they should work with you to work a solution. But it's not about release of loans. And the solution can involve giving you time to sell that, the asset mm. or the house yourself because that solution involves you paying the loan. The other thing we're saying quickly about complaints bodies that's really important for our audience is they're free, even if you mm. lose. So there's no risk like could happen sometimes in family court proceedings that you have your complaint heard and you end up with having to pay costs. 
doesn't mm. happen with any of these complaint bodies and that's really important I think. And so still talking houses and say you're not in a, in a mortgage situation but you're both renting, there's always the spectre of being blacklisted isn't there? If you don't do the right thing with your rental agreements, yes there is and the biggest listing company in Australia is a private company called Ticker and that's a database for real estate agents can access about tenants. So tenants can be blacklisted for a number of reasons and the problem is that often where there's uh, domestic violence there's more likely to be issues where there's termination for poor behaviour. So for example if there's a lot of shouting or damage. Damage done, to the property is a big, big one. one by one of the uh, joint tenants and that makes it nearly impossible even if the person experiencing violence who may not have damaged the property to actually get um, a tenancy. And you also hear about people who've had to flee the house mm. but the house is in their name on the rent yep. and yet the house is still being lived in and they're still being charged rent but they can't afford to pay for it. Yes. And terminating the lease in that scenario can often prove very difficult for somebody who's fled a relationship having experienced violence. The important thing is to communicate with your real estate as early as you possibly can if you find yourself in this position and try and head off the prospect of being listed. Because in our experience, once you are listed on the ticket database, it can prove very difficult to get yourself back off it. Because there is a period where you're blacklisted for, isn't there? three years but that's a long time to be on that to not be able to find rental accommodation particularly if you're in a smaller town too mm. where accommodation's difficult to find to start with and let's be honest in smaller towns those sort of experiences arguably become more easily known than they do in a larger city and the complaints mechanism for ticker listings are not that good so you don't have the access to a complaints body like AFCA. You only have one avenue, which is through the Privacy Commissioner, which can be a very difficult process. And, and you end up removal. there in the Queensland Civil and Administrative mm. Tribunal, don't you, eventually? For, for some issues, yes. And I suppose the best place, really, if you need advice for this, is the, the Tenants Queensland. Abs yeah, completely um, agree there. They're, mm. they're the experts in this space. Yeah. And so looking at telecommunication companies, I, th I know we've discussed this briefly, that also poses a problem for people wanting to deal with their accounts in future too if they've got outstanding debts there. Unlike some of the lenders and creditors where there's proper domestic violence policies even at the bank level, telephone companies don't generally have those policies. And we have seen people have five, six mobile phones that have been given to one of the parties and they've been sold, either hocked um, by the other party or, you know, pawned at a pawnbroker, sold or they've, when they've left the relationship, obviously they've taken the phone with them, but the contract is still payable by the other party and they can't get the phone back. So often what's happened in the past is sometimes telephone companies have said, yeah, we'll think about releasing or waiving that debt, but we want the phone back. And so it's really not 
a solution, a workable solution. Or they sell the phone or hock it, which breaches their contract. And again, the, that's one of the things that might mean that they could make a Okay, so let's just place. separate that out a bit, Loretta. Oh, good, because I like to talk a bit, yes. So there's a couple of scenarios in mm. the telco space. You, you've talked a little bit there about them hocking the phone. Yes. The issue with them hocking the phone comes up when they're leasing the phone. Mm. Because when they're leasing the phone, they don't actually own it. Yes. And exactly. so by selling it, they're arguably dealing with that mm. phone in a way they're not entitled to because they don't own it. Mm. It's a different scenario if they're buying the phone as part of the contract. Yes, but often in those first, when it's under contract, they're not allowed to sell the phone either because it's security for that contract. Yeah, but, but that's, but that's mm. a different, what I'm saying is that's yeah. a different discussion to if it's a rental contract. Absolutely, yes. So if it's, a, if it's a sale contract, the thing that goes wrong there is it's often hard to get a resolution that doesn't involve the person experiencing the violence having to pay some or all of the cost of the phone. Yes. Or the person, the other party may destroy that phone as well. So they either take it or destroy it, those sorts of issues. Because that's just another mm. way of exerting control. control. And one of the things that they often do is that when people go in and they're asked to be the reference and they sign for these contracts, is that they're not the other party is often gives all all the contact is with the other party so they're the ones providing their email address obviously they've got the phone so it's their phone number that the telephone company is calling and they often have authorization on the account so the things that i've particularly seen in my practice is that the person experiencing the domestic violence only is aware of what the problem is once the contract's already been cancelled and there's been a huge bill. Now that bill might be, you know, $1,500. If you're on a pension, that might as well be $15,000. So it's a really serious problem for the, um, for the um, person who's fled that domestic violence situation. Let's look now at, you know, not just organisations just failing to look after people who are experiencing domestic violence but potentially creating more problems for them particularly when it comes to their privacy tell us about some of the issues you've seen there well I guess the starting point is for people experiencing the violence they can get confused by the fact that different companies can have very different approaches to how they deal with people experiencing violence and what sort of information they want uh, and that can create confusion you can have companies who just accept the person's word that they're in the violence and companies right at the other end of the spectrum who want various federal court orders showing that there's evidence of the violence and, and having to rehash that experience in, in trying to get a re resolution can be really confronting. Second issue is, is a privacy one, particularly on joint accounts and companies are getting much better at this, I think mm. it's fair to say. But in the past, we have seen examples where inadvertently a person experiencing violence's new address gets sent out on a letter that has the person controlling the relationship's address and then the person experiencing the violence address and both sets of addresses are on both letters sent, sent out to both parties. Yeah. 
and companies, particularly the banks, are doing a lot of work to try and make sure this doesn't ever happen again. And that's to their credit. But in the past, it has happened and it has a really detrimental effect on people who are trying to leave a relationship like that. I must say it's a tricky thing for banks and lenders to negotiate because they don't know when they're dealing with someone, particularly in a couple situation, whether there is um, domestic violence. So sometimes if you're in a relationship, you want your partner to have access to that information or to, you know, you don't like to have unnecessary roadblocks put in the way of obtaining the information for your joint accounts. But I, what I would mm. say there though is that's a very different scenario when there's clearly two separate addresses. They've really tried to work their way through that so that they don't put unnecessarily roadblocks where one party might be the person that has um, not control but has, you know, that's the party in the relationship that they've determined will deal with the finances or where there is financial control and they have to make sure that they're not disclosing information to one party that the other party shouldn't know about. So one of the other things that we saw is one party might be asking for financial hardship. The, you know, the person experiencing the violence might have remained in the home. They've gone to the bank and said, look, I need some hardship assistance. And they've said, you have to speak to your ex-partner, which they... Which the law doesn't support that view. No. The law is really clear. You, to get financial hardship, you don't need the okay of the other person who's jointly on the loan. And I believe the Australian Financial Complaints Authority has laid that out pretty clearly, hasn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. There's actually a guide that you can access and that website is a very good website to access if you need help around loans and you're experiencing family violence. Okay, well we'll make sure we provide a link to that along with this reporting. So we've, we've spent a lot of time discussing a range of situations that people have found themselves in because of domestic and family violence and financial control. Lots of time spent talking about their problems. Why don't we have a bit of a chat about solutions? If people are having trouble dealing with their creditors, what are some tips that you might have, or do you have a checklist that they can use for dealing with creditors? I think the big one and the really important one is seek help as early as you possibly can. And by seeking help, it can be enough to say to them, I can't pay. It doesn't need to be any more complicated mm. than that because these organisations now have processes that should be able to deal with somebody going, I can't pay. And if they don't, you, you're able to take that to higher levels within the bank or the company, and then onto the complaints bodies like the Australian Financial Complaints Authority we were talking about. There are mechanisms there to protect you, but you've got to feel comfortable accessing them. And what we're saying is it's okay to say, I need help. I also like to add, it's okay to ring somebody like Legal Aid. Even if you're going to the creditor, sometimes you don't know what options are available. There might be an option offered to you by the creditor, which you're not entirely comfortable with, or you think you want something better or something different. If you have the advice as to what might be possible, you're much better able to have that conversation with the creditors. Get advice 
get legal advice early on or financial counselling advice is a good thing too but get it as early as you can because you're much more able to make the choices that you need to make and the earlier on that you make uh, make the call the more options you have. Often if somebody's making a call to whoever answers that telephone call mm. and they feel that they're just not being listened to and they feel pretty powerless, don't they? I mean, what can they do in that situation to perhaps escalate the need to listen to the reason they can't pay? The really good news in this space is companies on the whole have set up specialist units within the, those companies for dealing with issues associated with people experiencing family violence and the debts that come with that. Our experience, if you're not referred to those more specialist people, feel free to ask. If you're not comfortable with the initial experience at the call centre, I'd ask to speak to a manager. And if you're saying I'm experiencing family violence, that should be enough to trigger the manager to deal with it appropriately. And if they don't, then you'd bump it up to the next level, which is what's called the internal dispute resolution area of the company. And if they don't deal with it successfully, that's why the complaint bodies like AFCA, the Telecommunications Ombudsman, the Energy and Water Ombudsman exist to be that almost circuit breaker when the communication between people experiencing violence and the company is not working as well as it should. Having said that, my experience over the past few years is companies are now actually getting quite good at dealing with people experiencing family violence and, and all of the issues that come with that, and, and that's to their credit. Are they perfect? By no means. But are they significantly better than they used to be? Absolutely. And, and I think that's something that's really important for people to hear because there is a lot of negative press about particularly financial institutions around the place at the moment. On this issue, I think they've done a good job and my experience is they're trying to get better at dealing with these issues. I think where the problem mo mostly is that we've seen on a practical basis is when people go into branches or the little shops, they're not so good at dealing with these complaints. I mean, that's unfortunate because they can often be the most vulnerable in the community. Generally, if you ring these companies, they, their processes on the phone are a lot better. I think if it's an area that companies have to work on, it's that outward-facing services, like the little telco shops. Yeah. That, that's a fair call, right? Mm. So you've, we've had a chat about you know, not being afraid to ask for help. Mm -hmm. I think that's such an important step that people can take. And particularly with, with financial control issues with a number of organisations, where else can people get help? I always like to say Legal Aid Queensland is the best place for uh, people who live in Queensland to go and call or if you live in one of the other states to call that Legal Aid Commission for advice as a first port of call. What number Loretta? That's the key bit isn't uh, it? In Legal Aid in Queensland 1300 651188. <laughs> um, but also there's uh, community legal centres both in Queensland and across the country. There's some specialist community legal centres that have been set up in the financial services area and they're in New South Wales and Victoria. 
The other number that people can call, particularly if they have financial debts, is the James Bond number. Who is the James Bond number? It's financial <laughs> counsellors across Australia and you just have to ring one number. It's one 800 007 And the good bit about that number is if you're calling from in, within Queensland, it's answered by financial counsellors in Queensland. Exactly. If you're calling within New South Wales, it's answered by financial councils in New South Wales. And you might want to go and check out some Money Smart stuff. And that's uh, at the Money Smart website, set up by the Australian Securities and Investment Commission. And I think we'll put something... We'll provide a link for that that. on the page. And don't forget, Loretta, Legal Aid has a lot of very good resources on its own website, particularly Mm. around family law, family violence and joint debts and family violence, so that's another good place to call. And for community workers who are perhaps supporting a lot of people who find themselves in this situation, who's best for them to call? Well, again, Legal Aid's a very good resource, and if you're in Queensland, it's that 1300 65 or you can also look at the AFCA website. They have some special guides about um, family violence and how lenders should deal with family violence issues. Why they're important is that AFCA uses them in making their decisions. Mm. So they're put out there to say to industry and people experiencing family violence, if you bring a complaint to us and it looks a bit like this, here's how we're likely to resolve it. Mm. And the good bit about that is it draws people towards trying to make a resolution along those lines without you having to go to AFCA. And that's really important mm. because the, one of the things that tires people out in this space is having to tell their story again and again and again. And so anything that avoids that is just so important. So it could be said the examples we've discussed today are just a small part of a very, very large list of many behaviours that fall into the scope of domestic violence. Domestic violence is common and very harmful and happens in all sections of the community across all cultures. Uh, It's one of those things we say is across all borders. And being abused isn't a normal part of a healthy relationship. And the law acknowledges living free from violence is both a human right and a fundamental social value. So if you or someone you know is experiencing domestic violence, It's important to know what legal, financial and housing options are available to you and that you can rely on someone to support you in the choices you do make. And finally, if you or someone you know is experiencing domestic violence and you're not alone and domestic and family services can help you work out a plan to leave early. So if you need support at any time, day or night, you can contact DV Connect on 1800 811 811 or during work hours, you can get in touch with Legal Aid Queensland, a family relationship centre or the family relationship advice line. And Legal Aid Queensland's number yet again is 1300 65 1188. And don't forget, if you or your children are at immediate risk of harm, please call the police. Don't muck around. So in an emergency, call triple zero. Just like to thank Paul and Loretta very much for all your time in the chat. And we'll pop some of those handy links for everybody on the page. Thank you. Thanks, Caroline. Thank you.